You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. This strike isn't about money. It's about quality of life. I mean, our folks want to be treated with dignity and respect. They want to put less locomotives on the rails, build longer trains, which puts a big strain on everybody and everything. It was 100% patient safety. That is what we're here about. That is why we are nurses. It's patient safety. We have lost either the capacity or the will to actually make capitalism work in the way that it actually was designed to work and to spread its benefits. Never in a thousand years would I think making bracelets with children would be a political problem. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, a strike that wasn't and one that was. From The Rick Smith Show and America's Workforce Radio, we have two reports on the issues that nearly forced tens of thousands of rail workers out on strike this week. Early Thursday morning, the Biden administration brokered a tentative agreement that, at least for now, has averted a nationwide rail strike. On Your Rights at Work, we hear from one of the 15,000 nurses in Minnesota who struck for three days this week over patient safety issues. And Radio Labor is back from its summer break with an interview with Guy Ryder, Director General of the International Labor Organization. Our final show this week, Educating from the Heart, takes a look at how even art classes are not immune from the ongoing culture wars. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Hey, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, help build the Labor Radio Podcast movement. Take a moment to subscribe and share the show. Sonic Solidarity Works. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome back to The Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So I'm looking at the news, and the, the big no, news is there's a freight strike co- coming, a rail strike coming, and it's going to cost $2 billion a day, according to reports. And again, this is supposed to make us look at the workers and, and blame them. Because uh, I've heard a bunch of people say, well, you know, if those rail workers go on strike, you know, the supply chains, it's going to... These workers work in in bad conditions. Uh, I mean, I've been the stories I've been hearing. I got to tell you, I don't know how you don't you don't strike in this, these moments. Uh, but here to share some thoughts of where things are going to go. The deadline, September sixteenth, I believe, uh, as as we we move towards that day, uh, the possibility of a nationwide rail strike. Uh, can be painful. I, I'm, I'm not saying it's not going to be, but here to share some thoughts on where things are, where things may go, and and maybe the whys and hows. I've asked Jared Cassidy to come talk with us. He's the Assistant National Legislative Director of the Smart Union, the Sheet Metal Air Rail Transport Union. Jared, thanks for taking time for us. Hey, thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. and happy to be here. While we don't want to strike, our membership is is suffering the consequences of what these railroads have done for, for the last five years. This strike isn't about money. It's it's not about putting more money in our wallets. It's about quality of life. I mean, our folks want to be treated with dignity and respect. And, and you know, the railroads just come out swinging with something like this when they refuse 
to even consider um, really minor items like sick leave and, and us being able to take care of ourselves and our right. members be able to go to the doctor. What's the problem here? Money is not the problem. Uh, control is the problem. Uh, the railroads are the most profitable American um, industry in, in the country. And I mean, they make 50% profit uh, year over year. As we discussed last time, uh, quarter after quarter after quarter, they're turning billion dollars profits. The other issue that we're, we're dealing with, and this is one of the ones that's the most disturbing for me to wrap my head around, is we're just trying to get two preventative or two sick days a year that we can get preventative care. And, and not be disciplined or, or fired for just trying to go to the doctor and, and get our physical exams. And we're also trying to get leave or make it possible for us to get sick and go to the doctor and be treated or uh, be a husband, be a father to our kids and, and be able to take care of them when they're sick too, without fear of retribution. Because the way it is now, if we simply try to take care of a child when they're sick or, or to do anything to help out on the family, if there's a leaky faucet, God forbid, in a house when you come home from a 12-hour shift and have no time to rest, there's no reprieve from being able to take care of the things you need to take care of as a husband, as a father, as a homeowner, whatever the situation may be. And we are just trying to get some sick leave in place so that we can have some protection for our folks to be able to do the things that they need to do for self-care and betterment of their families. You listen to the Rick Smith Show. We're here with Jared Cassidy, Assistant National Legislative Director for the Smart Unions, the Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transport Union. You can check out their website, smart-union.org. You've been listening to the Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at Show.com. Until next time, this has been the Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker. Let's go to the state of Arkansas right now. Joining us on line number two is Mr. Thomas Modica, who comes to us from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. This would be a local 807. And they represent rail workers. And as you know, there's been a lot of negotiations going on right now. There's actually about a dozen unions that uh, are involved in the freight railroads. And the negotiations have been very, very difficult. And the IBEW is one of those unions, and they just reached an agreement here. Hey, Tom, welcome to the show. How are we doing today, my brother? Doing wonderful yourself. Good, 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 good. Well, you got to be pretty happy here. Talk to me. Well, well, how many members in your local? 136, is that right? Yes, we have 136 dues paying members. All right. And, and we are and we are 100% uh, organized uh, according to the Railway Labor Act. That's where we have to operate. Okay, okay. So you have a tentative agreement. Talk to me about that part. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, according to the Railway Labor Act, you know, we went to negotiation with the mediation. And it's been about two and a half years until we had a contract renewal. Of course, our contract under the Railway Labor Act does not expire. Um, and went through a mediation process, and then uh, we got released from mediation, went to uh, PEB, and uh, the PEB made their recommendations, and now they're being sent out for ratification. So from what you've been able to gather, how do you feel about it? Well, I've been doing this for 25 years now, and this is the highest uh, rate that we've gotten, of course, it's the highest interest i've seen in 25 years too inflation um but uh we didn't get everything we wanted but the carrier darncher didn't get what they wanted 
So what are you hearing so far? Because these have been pretty brutal talks. And I know one of the big issues is the attendance policy and how workers are getting docked, even if they, you know, if they're sick for the day. It's, it's ridiculous. And if you get so many points against you, you could lose your job. What, what are the workers yes, saying? That, yes, that's in the engineering department or the engineer department. Um, well, I'm on the mechanical side and we have a we don't have a point system per se. But, you know, those guys over there in the engineering department, the engineers and conductors on uh, transportation, um, they're on call 24-7. And if you want to work in that side of the department, you're going to – I mean, they make pretty good money, but you don't have any family time at all. And even on our side with our attendance policy, that nothing's excused. So we have benefits, like we're, we've took to go to annual business, go see your doctor, and that's what we asked for. We went back in. Um, after the PEB recommendations, we met with the carriers again, and uh, we tried to get excused uh, absences to where we can have our annual checkups so we can stay healthy, and they're not excusing anything. They're squeezing everything because they want to do more with less. <laughs> you can't even get a checkup. <laughs> no. <laughs> now, that's no. that's ridiculous. Did this all change when these companies were taken over by, like, Wall Street hedge funds and and they, you know, got on the uh, on the public trading market? Is, is that when everything started getting to the point where it is today, in your opinion? Yes. Yes. And PSR has not helped out either. Now, PSR is what? Precision schedule railroading. And can you explain what that is? Well, it's it's basically they're streamlining all their. Uh, they want to do, put less locomotives on the uh, rails, uh, build longer trains, um, which puts a big strain on everybody and everything. Uh, just where they can make more money, um, they uh, they've done a time study on us to find out how much how long it takes to do a job. Of course, you know there's there's no way to accurately time it, and uh, that way they can create how many man hours you need as far as uh, workforce. So we're doing more with less. We don't have any relief positions anywhere for like vacation relief. It, it makes it very difficult. It sounds like they want to turn you into robots right now. You take care, stay strong, and stay in touch. Okay, brother? Yes, sir. Have a wonderful day. This is a public service announcement with guitar. All right, everybody, welcome, welcome to Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock here once again with Mr. Ed Smith. Hey, if you've got questions about your workplace rights, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, now's the time. Give us a call, 202-588-0893. Hey, great show today. 15,000 Minnesota nurses stage a three-day, count it, three-day strike this week. It's the largest private sector nurses strike in U.S. history. We're going to talk about why they want. Also, millennials and Gen Zers are the most pro-union generation since the 1930s and 1940s. American prospect editor-at-large Harold Meyerson joins us to talk about why he's dubbed them Generation Union. Joining us 
from St. Louis Park, Minnesota, Victoria Z. Handler. Hi, it's nice to be here with you. It was 15,000 nurses total that went on strike. It got to a point where we needed to really make a statement. We have nurses that are being oriented to the intensive care unit that don't get to be oriented because they are being pulled to float to their old floors. We have observation units that are being closed down because they are being used as a float pool to go to other floors. This really is crisis conditions, and we have not had any meaningful staffing counters from the hospital throughout the entire negotiations, and that's what we did our strike for. It was 100% patient safety. That is what we're here about. That is why we are nurses. It's patient safety. Joining us now is Harold Meyerson. He had a terrific Labor Day piece, Generation Union. It's available at prospect.org. Victoria, I think you might be in this demographic or fairly close. In Harold's piece, he pointed out that 72% of Americans 18 to 34 years of age approve of unions, but that just 3% of that same demographic actually belong to unions. Harold, welcome to your rights at work. What is going on? What is going on is that the National Labor Relations Act has been so weakened by decades of court decisions and intransigent employer opposition. And the weakening of the act basically has meant that employers can violate the National Labor Relations Act by firing activists and organizers in organizing campaigns to basically compel those campaigns to lose. That's been going on for a long time. Uh, as you well know, President Biden himself announced the tentative agreement with diverting the rail strike. Quick reaction thoughts on that? Well, I mean, the the two unions that had not reached agreement, the, the issue was their ability to go see a doctor and not have that counted against them. In other words, to have not even paid leave in the settlement, but simply leave to go and see a doctor. So this simply reflects what is all too common in American labor relations, which is punishing workers for having a life. And railroads, of course, were the first interstate industry in the United States. And the history of railroad worker militants goes back to the 1870s. The government has not always supported that. In the strike of 1877, they sent in the army to bust it, which they did again in 1894. And it, it's been a challenge for railroad workers throughout American history. What the Biden administration did was really, I think, try to get something for the workers. Biden himself, the last time there was a, a railroad lockout, and or strike in 1992, voted against a congressional bill requiring the workers to go back to work. So I think he tried to maintain really what is one of the brightest parts of his presidency so far, which is its pro-worker, pro-union stance in the settlement he announced today. Thank you both, Victoria and Harold, so much for joining us. Victoria, keep up the fight. And Harold, just keep those wonderful pieces going at prospect.org. Thanks. Will do. Thank uh, you. Victoria is a handler, is a, one of the striking nurses in Minnesota. Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large at the American Prospect. Terrific piece on young folks organizing at prospect.org.
Hey, you have been listening to Your Rights at Work, engineered today, as always, with a plum by Michael Nacella and Kalia Chapman. Thanks so much to them. Thanks to our guests. And as always, thanks to you all for listening. Stay tuned, and we will see you all next week. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Monday, September 12th, 2022. I'm Mark Boulanger. The International Labor Organization is calling on countries to build a new social contract to be implemented by governments, business and labor in a post-pandemic world. In a recent webinar, the Director General of the ILO, Guy Ryder, said that currently capitalism is not working to decrease inequality or provide adequate and decent employment. The ILO is the UN specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. In the webinar, Mr. Ryder mentions the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. The SDGs, as they are known, are 17 goals related to topics such as decent work, education, and gender equality. Mr. Ryder. We're in the midst of this pandemic from which we should learn some lessons, I think. But the biggest lesson of all is, I think, we've made the promises. You're keeping the promise. The promise was made in the the SDGs, the 2030 Development Agenda. And, you know, pre-pandemic, the promise was not being kept. And there was a contradiction in what we were doing and what we are doing. What's the contradiction? We've set ourselves a transformational agenda. It calls itself a transformational agenda to deliver all of these wonderful goals. But we simply refused to adjust the policy settings that could reasonably be expected to produce transformation. We can't simply adjust the settings. We have to change the settings of our policy approaches. We have lost either the capacity or the will to actually make capitalism work in the way that it actually was designed to work and to spread its benefits. Why? Some would say globalization. Uh, some would say technology, some would say politi- political will has been missing, but we've got to go back to some basics here. And yes, it's about the institutions of work, it's about the actors of work, it's about investing in the jobs of the future, but I adhere very, very strongly to this notion of co-creation in the way our economies work and deliver. I think this notion of a new social contract that implies buy-in by the actors, is really powerful. And it goes directly to the notion of greater equity in our world, because you buy into a contract when you think you're getting out of it what you put into it. And whilst Professor Mazzucato has quite rightly, in my view, emphasised the role of social movements and and, and organised labour, I sometimes believe as well, speaking to business representatives, that they also find themselves trapped trapped by this financialization of, of business behavior. Uh, finance has become self-serving rather than a servant of the real economy and of the needs of us all. And we've got to put these things right. And yes, let's think of this co-creative social contract approach and draw the logical consequences of that and what we're living through today in the pandemic. We know those countries that do best in reducing inequality and they're countries with progressive tax systems. They're countries with strong industrial relations 
and collective bargaining systems. They are countries which take seriously minimum wage policies and take seriously the provision of social protection and public services. So those are the tried and tested recipes for reducing inequality. And we know they work. I mean, there's no mystery here. The fact of the matter is, for whatever reason, be it ideological or other, these policies and these mechanisms and these institutions have been allowed to atrophy to some extent. And I think this underlines this notion that somehow, somehow, the idea of social contract, what we think is fair and decent in society, has either been dismantled or allowed to lapse. And it's time to reconstruct it. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radiolabor. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. from the heart. Thank you for joining our lively conversations with teachers, support professionals, parents, and students as they share issues that matter most in our public schools. Here are your hosts, Tina Dunbar and Luke Flint. Welcome back to another new season of Educating from the Heart. I'm Tina here with my co-host, Luke, and we're kicking off the start of a brand new school year as close to 3 million Florida students head back to their classrooms. And I bet you can relate to this, Luke. This is an exciting and a busy time of year for parents, students, and teachers too. You are absolutely right, Tina. As a teacher, there was nothing more exciting to me than the start of a new school year. It was actually my favorite time of the entire calendar year. My art teacher, Marilyn Price, still stands out. She taught me to spend time in reflection and how to process events in the world around me. You know, back then, teachers were free to openly talk with their students and answer questions that made you think and expand your curiosity. They weren't afraid to answer questions. I truly believe that sense of freedom and security helped her to help me excel in school. Oh, it absolutely does. That's why we sat down with an art teacher from St. John's County named Alex McKeon. We spoke with her over the summer about her experience over the past school year and her hopes for this upcoming year in light of some of the new restrictions educators are facing. Hi, I'm Alex McKeon. Um, I'm from St. Augustine, Florida. I teach elementary school art. I've been doing that for one year. Before that, I taught four years of high school art. So I could very clearly imagine, even though I haven't been in the classroom um, in, in a few years, how the political climate would impact an English classroom. Yes, especially. How, yeah, but help me understand how it impacts an art classroom. Well, for me, it's... It, the. Despite teaching art, there are plenty of things that come up in my classroom because they're doing a lot of independent work and that is when conversations happen. So if a child says something inappropriate, 
I want to explain to them why that's not okay. And there are some rules being put in place that make it difficult for me to explain why that is not nice, that is not kind, and that is not okay for you to do, period. Because people see it as, oh, that's just your opinion. I'm like, no, it's either kind or it's not. There's no, oh, I think that's nice. You know, it, I don't know. Like there, there are offensive things and there are things that are not offensive. If someone's offended by it, it's offensive. That's what offensive is. And we're being sort of put in these boxes where we can't do that classroom management because we don't want to say something that will sort of open a, a, a floodgate to some other conversation because kids ask all types of questions. They and they are, should. And they should. They should. And we should be able to answer them. And we're being sort of muzzled. And it gets in the way. I'm, you know, trying to, to go back to when I was in elementary school and, and thinking of the things that I did in art class. Um, and, like, rainbows, right? Weather is, is, is a thing. I, mean, I make right, rainbows all the time. Yeah, I mean, for lots of reasons. Does, Color theory, that that's incorporating science. Cross-curricular is the best way for kids to retain. So if I'm going to teach them about colors, I should teach them about the rainbow. And now the rainbow has this whole new meaning. But it's also still just a rainbow. rainbow. Right, but that's what I was getting at. Is, that, is there the fear that a, a child, little Johnny, comes home with artwork and yes. then mom calls up the school and says, this art teacher is having my child paint rainbows. That is very real. And like this year, kids love making bracelets. They just think it's so fun. They get to pick the beads. They're like, I'm going to spell my name. And um, it, it's just a great way for them to learn like dexterity and fine motor skills. Um, and one boy came back in and he was like, can I make another bracelet? My, my mom won't let me wear, wear the one I made. Why? And he was like, well, because bracelets are for girls. Mm. And so it's things like that where I never even thought of that. Men wear jewelry all the time. Most jewelers are men. I'll just, men I'll wear just say, all the about the bracelets. Yeah. I'm wearing a bracelet well, right every, now. A lot of men do. My husband wears like the leather ones that are yes. made for men with the, you know, his initials. But I mean, artistry is not gendered. You're just producing art. And, like, the fact that that was even taken that way blew my mind. Never in a thousand years would I think making bracelets with children would be a political problem. Because they were just having fun. Right. We weren't even talking about anything. They're like, ooh, there's purple. I'm going to make this one purple and this one sparkly. And I'm going to put BFF. And I'm going to give it to Sarah. Like, they just love it. Because they made it. And they get to wear it. I think that's everybody's biggest concern now. That something that's so basic, so simple, so innocent, can be turned into something so ugly, so yes. divisive, you know, yes. so hateful. And we just want to teach them love. Because that's... What we're, that's what we want. We want them to feel love. We want them to give love. And we don't want to put these limitations on them because they're just kids. They don't need to see that big angry world. They don't need that hate. They just need to have fun and they need to learn. 
That's it for this episode. And until we meet again, keep educating from the heart. If you enjoy our podcast, ask your friends and colleagues to subscribe on our website at feaweb.org backslash educating from the heart. Send your comments and feedback to heart at floridaea.org. Again, that's heart, H-E-A-R-T at floridaea.org. Or you can leave a voicemail at 850-201-3384. Educating from the Heart is a production of the Florida Education Association. FEA is the statewide educators union with more than 150,000 members, including teachers, education staff professionals, higher education faculty, graduate assistants, students preparing to become teachers, and retired educators. And that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for the podcast. You'll find all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.